The Rays Radio Network proudly presents This Week in Rays Baseball. Here's your host, Neil Solons. Well, hi, everybody. Welcome to our first official podcast of the offseason with the World Series now complete. We figure why not take a look at what's to come for the Rays. It should be a pretty busy month of November. And joining us to chat about everything Rays and also look back at the just completed World Series is the guy who covers it all. That being, of course, Mark Topkin of the Tampa Bay Times. Topper, thanks very much for hanging out with us. Anytime, Neil. I mean, we hung out this weekend. Now we're doing a podcast. We've just been off-season buddies so far. Yes, we have. And uh, look, there's a lot that's going to go on this month. Before we touch on the Rays, I'm curious your take on Atlanta winning its first World Series since before the Rays had played a game in their organization, 1995. It's a big accomplishment for them. And for me, it kind of shows, Mark, that um, whoever you think is probably going to win usually isn't. I mean, two of the last three years, it's been them in Washington who both struggled for a good portion of the season. Well, and, you know, look, Neil, three teams that won a hundred games this year and none of those teams were even in the world series. Right. So I, I think it does tell you a couple things, or you can make it tell you a couple things, depending on if you like it or don't like how it turned out, but you know, 88 wins during the regular season, a team that, lost a bunch of key players during the season, a team that many thought might be a seller at the trade deadline that instead became an aggressive and, and as we've since come to know, very successful buyer at the trade deadline. I mean, I think you can latch on to a lot of things that happened with the Braves and find a lot of hope in that. I think you can find a lot of example in that now. You know, you lose your best player in early July. You have a couple other injuries. You've got some big money free agents. A lot of teams would have been prompted to sell and give Alex Anthopoulos, their general manager, credit and their ownership. Uh, they were in a situation where, and, and this, you know, it's, it's not all benevolence here either. They were in a situation where they were selling a lot of tickets. They were drawing well this year. And, and I think that may have been part of it. Like, don't give up the ship here. Let's keep trying to win here. Let's keep people coming to the ballpark. They've created a great model and a lot of things worked for them. And they never got above 500 until August 6th. I mean, you consider you went four months without your record at all getting above 500. And then remember, it was in 19, Washington was so 24 and 36. They got in as a wild card and they won. So I guess you never lose hope during a season. But the other thing is, does this speak also to Eric Neander's theory? I want to be good every year. If we get in the playoffs every year, we have a chance to win the thing versus you got to go all in for a particular season because I don't think the Braves went all in this year. They added, but they didn't go all in. Right. And look, I mean, we, we were there, the Rays were there the first series after the all-star break. And that's when some of these things started happening. They made the Stephen Vogt trade that one of those days, I remember we were thinking, you know, we would, Oh, how funny Stephen Vogt started as a Ray coming to the Braves now. And um, you know, it, it didn't look like it was necessarily going to work. It took a while. And it, it does show you that if you have a chance to get in, a lot of things could happen. You don't have to go all in. They didn't go all in. As I was trying to say, the guys the Braves got, and when they got Jorge Solar, no one thought, oh, there's the answer. They got Jock Peterson. No one thought, oh, there's the answer and the new fashion icon of baseball. I mean, none of those things people thought at the time. It looked like, okay, they lost some really good players. They're getting some serviceable guys. Maybe they'll piece it together and figure something out. And then, you know, they're pitching – some of their pitching issues they had during the year, some of those relievers who starred during the postseason were sent down or struggled during the season. So they mm -hmm. had a lot of ups and downs, but they persevered. And it, I think it does show, as you said, there, there's an opportunity there 
So instead of, you know, build it up and tear it down, the Astros were really bad for a while and they've been really good for a while. The Cubs were really bad for a while. They were really good for a while. Now they're on the decline. So, you know, if you can find that sweet spot that Eric Neander and the Rays talk about, of you know, their mantra has always been play meaningful games in September, which you kind of translate to meaning you're in the race. So sure, if you're always hanging around and you, you know, if you're not, Winning the division, you're at least in the wild card race, and you can get in. I think, as you point out correctly, we've had several examples, including those two recently, where that's enough. Just get in the tournament and see what happens. Exactly, and you know, you mentioned Jorge Soler; he becomes the World Series MVP, and Eddie Rosario is the the NLCS MVP. And nobody at the deadline was saying those are the two guys that are going to be difference makers. Everyone was talking about whether it's the White Sox, it was them getting Kimbrell, it's the race getting Cruz, it's the Yankees getting Anthony Rizzo, et cetera, and so on. Those were less heralded moves, and they turned out to be the ones that were difference makers. Yeah, it, it kind of goes back to, you know, as, as much as we all joke about some of the cliches of the game, but you really don't ever know in baseball. You really don't ever know. And it's it's a team game that requires so many different elements and and. There's almost every time you can analyze a season and go back and look, there were some people who were supposed to be really good that weren't, whether through injury or lack of performance. And there were some people who weren't supposed to be really good or weren't supposed to get into the big leagues yet that do and do really well. And it, it takes all those elements. It takes a steady hand from the manager. It takes leadership from the front office. It takes individual players stepping up sometimes in unheralded roles or even behind the scenes things that you find out about later. Yeah, you know, as silly as it sounds, there was a really cool story in the New York Times last week about the Braves, and it was they added a soft serve ice cream machine. I mean, Andy Freed, I think, was going to leave the Rays and go join the Braves broadcast team when he heard about that, but they put a soft serve ice cream machine in their clubhouse, and, and it was an issue because the players asked for it. The GM, he was very frank. He had a great quote. He said, "I pictured a bunch of guys sitting around eating ice cream, getting fat. Like, do I really want to do this? Like, what's the team nutritionist going to say?" And, but, you know, the players wanted it. They thought it through. They kind of agreed, let's do it. And everybody was happy. And just a silly example. But, you know, the, we see that with the Rays, a very relaxed atmosphere. This, you know, preceded Kevin Cash. He's continued it back to the Joe Madden days. But they're not doing dress code. They're not doing mandatory batting practice. They're not doing some of the things, you, you know, hotels, you know, they have a, a kind of a room where the guys can just hang out. Like, you know, you don't have to make it all rigid and, and you know, dictatorship type stuff. I mean, it's a cooperative arrangement to keep everybody happy, keep them relaxed, keep them comfortable. That's a part of it too in baseball. The other thing I take away from this, Mark, is that I think there has to be an appreciation just for how difficult it is to win a World Series. We mentioned the Rays have been very good. They've gotten to two World Series. The Braves had not won since 1995. I mean, that's over a quarter century. That's basically a generation. It is really difficult to win in this league. It, it is. And, you know, we've, we've seen and, and, you know, we've talked about this on previous editions of this award winning podcast that, you know, getting to the to the postseason, winning in the regular season, maybe that's not the same as winning in the postseason. And the Rays have had a successful formula. Part of that is expanding their roster. And I thought Eric Neander had a good answer. I asked him that at the you know, end of season media session. You know, does the model for the regular season work? And he said, as with other things, they're going to look at that, but there is a greater concentration of talent during the postseason. You don't have the ability to send guys down after they pitch four innings and bring up a fresh arm. You have to use the same guys over and over again. And, you know, it's just interesting how different teams do it, but it is hard. It's challenging. And it's not always the same challenge winning a best of 
five or best of seven series as it is winning over a six-month season. I think all that goes into it. You're often facing better pitching. You're facing a higher concentration of good arms. You know, guys aren't getting rest days off. Depth maybe isn't as important. But then you see the Braves rotating those four outfielders, and one of the three biggest hits Solaire got was a pinch hit home run. So, you know, it, it, there's just so many factors. There's so much that goes into it, and just who's hot, who's not, who gets off to a good start. I mean, you saw um, uh, Jordan Alvarez dominate the ALCS against the Red Sox, and what did he have? One hit in the World Series. So he just, you know, it's just fickle. It's hard. It's difficult. It's challenging. It's unpredictable, and that's why we love it. Exactly. Baseball is fun. To, to quote a famous philosophizing <laughs> outfielder from Seminole, Florida, baseball is fun. Who continues to find work even when the Rays aren't playing? That being, of course, he's, Brett Phillips. He's amazing. Brett Phillips Industries. I, I want to be the I want to be the PR guy for Brett Phillips Industries when I'm done at the Times. There you go. Hey, let's now start to look forward with the Rays now beginning their quest to win their first World Series and get back to the postseason for a fourth straight year after for the first time getting there three years in a row. What do you think this month is going to be like for the race? How busy do you think November will be? It, well, let me give you the caveat to cover my, myself here is that you can never predict what the Rays are going to do during an offseason. We definitely talked several times last offseason, and I don't think at any point you said, I think they're going to trade Blake Snell for some guys we've never heard of that ever turned out to be really good. Like, I, I don't know that we had that conversation. I don't know that we expected that. Uh, Charlie Morton's option, maybe we were thinking they might decline that, maybe try to bring him back. I, I, you can't predict what they're going to do. That said, I, I did talk to Eric Neander. I did write a kind of an offseason preview in Wednesday's Tampa Bay Times. And one of the things he said was, uh, that to me was a tip-off, was after they kind of get a feel what other teams are trying to do will better inform their plan. So that, to me, indicates probably nothing big early. Now, that being said, they have an option on Mike Zanino that they're going to make a decision on here in the next couple of days. I think that's an automatic. They're going to pick it up for $7 million. So I think that will happen. They've got too many guys for their 40-man roster. They've got to reinstate. There's 12 uh, pitchers on the 60-day injured list, three of whom are free agents, but they've got to reinstate the other guys. So they've got to create some space. We've seen them make some early November trades before to create roster spots and, and maybe a guy who doesn't to fit as much in the plans uh, as he did previously, let's just say Mike Brasso, for example, or Brent Honeywell. Maybe they trade a guy like that to create a 40-man rough play. So I think you may see some small things early, but I, I, I don't think as we sit here today, and of course this will happen like in an hour from now, they'll make a 17-player trade. I don't think there'll be anything big initially. You mentioned Mike Zanino. I think there are probably two easy assumptions for this offseason. One is that I think they'll pick up the option. And then the other is that Wander Franco will be here. Beyond that, I, I agree with you. I don't know <laughs> that I can say there's any definites 100% opening day. I expect these guys to be on the team. Yeah, I, I don't think that's as big of a stretch as it probably sounds like. I mean, people are, are used to you being so you know entertaining and comical and, and you know with your one-liners throughout the podcast. <laughs> but I, I do think you're you're pretty close to accurate there. I mean. You know, just go around the go around the lineup. I mean, Joey Wendell. Joey Wendell's been a, a foundation player on this team for years, but Joey Wendell's going to make about four million dollars in arbitration. He plays second base and third base. They've got some really good guys in the minor leagues who we saw in glimpses this year, and Taylor Walls and Vidal Bruhan, 
who can do that? I mean, is Joey Wendell here? I, I don't know. Is G-Man Choi here? Is Yandy Diaz here? You know, there, there's a lot of guys we could go around. I mean, I, I do think that, you know, you've probably got a better chance in the outfield of seeing a Rosarena and Margot and Phillip than you do of seeing Kiermaier or Meadows. I think those guys are more likely to be traded, but, but I don't know that if they're the Rays, they don't have, they don't, the two things they don't do that other teams do, they don't have a set budget of, they have this exact amount to spend and that's it. No wiggle room up or down. And they don't have only one plan. They might go into the offseason saying, we're going to listen on Meadows and Kiermaier. And then someone might come to them for a deal on a Rosarena. And they might be like, all right, we'll do that. That's a better deal for us. So we're going to do that instead. So I, I think that that flexibility, that versatility, that open-mindedness that serves them well also makes it really hard to predict what they're going to do. Well, that's where I get to where um, plans come in. When Eric Neander says, we'll see what other teams' plans are, a lot of what the Rays will do will depend upon what the market dictates, correct? Exactly. Like, let, let's just say, you know, go with me here on that they're going to look to trade Meadows, which I, I do think is a possibility. But if they're getting just kind of tepid interest on Meadows and a tepid return, and the teams are saying, hey, but if you decide you wanted to move a Rosarena instead, we give you X plus X and they're only hearing X for Meadows. I, you know, I, again, this is just hypothetical. I'm not saying these things are happening, but then they may go back and say, you know what? The, the return is better. Let's trade a Rosarena then instead. Like I, I think they have that open-mindedness where other teams would be like, nope, we're trying to dump this guy. They tell that and then they don't get full market value. And then they lock themselves into a, a corner sometimes. That said, Pre-World Series, I chatted with Dave and Andy on our last podcast just about needs. And since that time, we learned that Nick Anderson's going to miss at least the first half of the year. We know that Colin McHugh is a free agent. Um, so how big a need is there to make moves that do positively impact the bullpen, whether they look big or they are, appear small and turn out to be big? And then because Tyler Glasnow is likely going to miss all of 22 – do they now need some sort of veteran starter to help protect the Rasmussen's, the McClanahan's, the Boss's, the Patinos of the world a little bit? I mean, I'd say yes to both, knowing that they can't address all the needs. And we're going to talk about some others, I'm sure, uh, positionally. But I think that what we've learned about the Rays, for the most part with the bullpen, is they definitely see that as a team effort. They'll, they'll go out and they'll build this depth and, They'll have eight or 10 or 12 guys in spring training in addition to the guys that finished the season active. And we'll see most of those during the year. I don't think they feel the need to go target necessarily the established reliever. I mean, David Robertson was a couple of years past that when they signed him this year. Colin McHugh was coming off a missed year. Uh, so I, I don't know that they're going to go out and sign the, the name reliever, but I think you'll see a, a group of arms. They do need some more arms. They've got some guys coming off the 60-day injury list that we mentioned who may fit in that category. Jalen Beeks, maybe a multi-inning reliever. Colin Pochet, uh, you, I know I heard this because I heard it on your podcast, your last one with Michael Johns, which people didn't listen to, they should, was a ton of information about minor leaguers and instructional league. And Colin Pochet was throwing really well by the end of instructional league. So you know, maybe he's their left-hander, their top left-hander for this year. And thus they have some little room. And maybe we see Adam Conley or Ryan Sheriff traded or dropped from the roster because they know Colin Pochet is coming back. But, so between who they've got coming back, the depth that they have, and their typical ability to sign guys to minor league free agent deals during the winter that we make one mention, one sentence mentions of, and then that guy pitches 27 high leverage innings during the year and you know has four saves and seven holds or something, 
I mean, so I, I think that'll cover itself. I, and your other question, I, I personally do think they need to go get a veteran starter. I do think they need someone besides Yarborough who can throw 150 innings and who can go out there. And, and yeah, you'd love, you'd love to say go out there and throw seven innings of shutout ball, but also go out there and throw seven innings when you give up a five spot in the first inning, but still eat the innings and protect the bullpen and protect the other guys in the rotation. So I, I do think they need one or two of those guys. Maybe Michael Walker comes back. He seemed to like it here. He did well toward the second half. I wouldn't think he'd be extremely expensive. Or maybe they go out and, and, you know, it's one of those musical chairs type things. They wait till the end of the offseason and, you know, there's one starter who didn't get a job anywhere else who's willing to, to take a little bit less to come here. A guy with, you know, some renown and some past success. And they can drop one guy like that in there to provide a little mentorship, but also to be good and, and give them a chance to win the ballgame. Yes. And, and look, you mentioned lefties. Jeffrey Springs is going to come back off ACL surgery. And I think people forget how good he was the first four months of the year. He was another guy who was unheralded in terms of their bullpen. It's also going to be a busy month, maybe in terms of awards for the race. Do you expect a rookie of the year, manager of the year combination here in November? Yeah, I mean, I think three three awards possibly for the race. Rookie of the year for Randy Rosarena. I think Kevin Cash has a shot, but not, not as clear as last year at being manager of the year again. And, and I think, you know, pre- and post-game radio host of the year is obvious that you're going to win that. <laughs> Hardly. But I appreciate the checks in the mail. In terms of Kevin Cash, though, I think actually this was a harder year for him. Um, I thought he actually did better. I mean, if you go back and look at preseason prognosticators, losing Morton and, and Snell, not having those guys, most people picked them third or fourth in the division. And they had to play 61 players and lost Tyler Glass now midseason, didn't have... Uh, Anderson, Rowe, Drake, et cetera, and still won 100 games. If it's a regular season award, for me, how can he not be the best manager in this league? The only argument that could be made for me is, is Charlie Montoya with Toronto because they had three home sites. Yeah, I think there's a couple guys. And here, here's one thing, Neil, and I'm, I'm in, in, in a little way probably indicting my colleagues here. These awards are voted by the Baseball Writers Association of America. They are voted before the start of the playoffs just on regular season performance. But a lot of times the manager of the year award, people view it as like who did the most with the least. And while the Rays weren't predicted, as you say, to win, the Yankees were kind of the most obvious choice to win the East. But the Rays were kind of mentioned, I think, maybe more second and third wild card kind of team. They were coming off a World Series appearance. But I don't think that perception that Kevin Cash didn't have that much to work with. Now, we know we, we lived in covering the season. We know what they went through. But from the outside, Sometimes, you know, the votes are cast, you know, you're like, okay, let's see who's manager of the year. Well, the Rays were good last year. They're good this year. So Kevin Cash didn't really do that much. And they're unfortunately that part of the process. I think there will be some votes uh, for Seattle because of how they did. I think there will be some votes for Detroit because of how they did. So uh, Cervantes and Hinch may end up getting some votes because they took teams that weren't supposed to be good. They didn't quite get there. I think Charlie Montoya will get, I think it's going to be a really interesting manager of the year vote. Kevin Cash, could win without, you know, he might get more first place votes and not win. He could get four second and third place votes. It's going to be one of those years where I don't think there'll be a clear winner. I think it could come down to four or five different guys. I don't think Tony LaRussa is going to win, but he'll probably pick up a vote or two along the way. You know, Dusty Baker is sentimental, sentimental favorite, even though they were supposed to win and they did. Alex Cora coming back to the Red Sox, a team that was bad last year and getting them to where they finished and making the playoffs as a wildcard team. So I, I wouldn't be surprised if there's not five or six guys who get votes in that in that uh, 
election, the manager of the year poll. And for Randy, what's your take there? He should win, but I, I find it interesting that the two uh, lesser awards that came out so far that were voted by players, he didn't win either one of those. Now, obviously, players don't have the perspective that us writers have and that ability to analyze the whole game. But I, I don't know. I'm curious. I mean, the Sporting News Award and the Players' Choice Award, both voted by the players, uh, and Mountcastle and Garcia winning kind of surprised me a little bit. I thought Randy would be a little bit more clear choice uh, to those guys. Now, that voting was done in September, not necessarily at the end of the season. Randy did do some things toward the end there that caught some attention by getting into the 2020 club. So maybe that'll help him with the writer's vote. But I, I think Randy should win. I'm not as sure about Kevin Cash. Here's a what if. If Wander did not get hurt, does he win rookie of the year? You're still talking about a limited number of games. What did he, he ended up playing 70. Mm -hmm. So if he doesn't get hurt, he plays 84, 83, something like that. I mean, it's not impossible. We saw Will Myers win it for the Rays playing about half a season or so. And, and there have been a couple guys that have done that. So I, I do think Wander would get more votes. I think Wander will show up on the ballot. I think you'll see someone vote Wander first or second. It's You, you vote for three for rookie of the year. I should know this because I am a voter this year uh, for rookie of the year. I think you'll see Wander's name show up on a ballot. Um, I can't say if he's on mine or not. We're not allowed to reveal anything until afterward. But I think you'll see Wander's name show up somewhere. But I, I do think Randy will win out. Could that split the vote? Could Randy lose some votes because people vote for Wander? They don't want to vote for two Rays out of the three spots. I, I guess so. Um, but you could also vote for Shane McClanahan. I mean, you, you could turn in a ballot, I think, with Randy McClanahan and Wander on it and not feel like you were necessarily being a Rays homer. I mean, I, I think that those three guys – we're all pretty legitimate. Now, the two Garcias and Mount Castle also obviously had good years. I would say Whitlock, too, from Boston, probably doesn't get enough credit for the kind of year he had just because relievers kind of fall a little bit under the radar. There, We know that there's going to be some change, as you've mentioned, with the Rays on the field. We've had a little bit of change off the field so far. You've written about it. You first touched on the coaching change that has been made, and the Rays have also lost one of their minor league coaches to a major league team. Yeah, and I, you know, I don't think we fully, uh, as we sit here and record this yet, the Rays haven't formally announced the coaching change, so I don't think we have the full uh, explanation behind it. But the gist of it is uh, Ozzie Timmons, who was fulfilling multiple roles for the Rays the past few years, will now concentrate just as the assistant hitting coach. Uh, that'll be disappointing, I think, probably to the group of fans that loved having him uh, at first base, where he showered them with free baseballs and, and often entertained them between innings and stuff. But Ozzy will come off the field. He'll constantly assist the hitting coach. Chris Prieto, who's been uh, in the minor league system for the last couple of years for the Rays as the outfield and base running coordinator, meaning he worked with minor leaguers at all levels, formerly a member of the Seattle Mariners coaching staff. I think he had third base and maybe also first base. He was on their staff, I think, for six years. Uh, played in the big leagues briefly, two games, in fact, which will be a fun story when we get a chance to sit down with him. Uh, and talk about his brief major league career, but he'll take over first base, outfield base running. And, you know, I, maybe one of those things where the fresh voice, kind of a fresh perspective kind of thing helps. And certainly with some young players that they have, and even some of the outfielders, you know, Randy Rosarena, I think is good, but I think he can get better in the outfield. And I think that'll help a little bit. And assuming we're going to see Vidal Brujan play some outfield and Josh Lowe coming up, I think you're going to see some of those guys will benefit from, you know, whether it's just a different voice or whatever. They're familiar with them in the minor leagues, of course. And 
Uh, then as far as the minor league staff, Greg Brown, who'd been the Rays, my, one of the Rays minor league hitting coordinators and only been with the Rays a couple of years, came to them from the college ranks from Nova Southeastern. And we're seeing this trend now in mm-hmm. baseball where teams both as pitching and hitting coaches are hiring coaches from the college ranks, whether directly or after a couple of years in the game, as in Greg Brown's case. But I think that's because the college guys have been more maybe open to some of these even more advanced technological uh, physiological type of coaching methods that people in the major league game hadn't been doing. And some teams want to try that, try to implement that further. Yeah. And, and the, the front office though, the upper levels have stayed status quo. Peter Bendix, I think you reported is staying with the Rays, a vice president who had some interest from the Mets. It's still possible that others may depart. And that's going to be an interesting part of this next month or so. Right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we've already seen uh, Peter Bennett's name, as you mentioned, flooded with the Mets. Carlos Rodriguez was one of four finalists for the Cubs general manager job. He's another one of the Rays' top-level vice presidents, does an incredible job with international scouting, runs the minor league system. I think his name's going to come up and will continue to come up. And then the Rays, and I I hate to admit this, and and I know this is not the case for you, but sometimes the Rays will have one of these guys that you you don't really even ever meet them. They kind of under the radar. You don't know their name. You might see them on the field once in a while and say, who's that guy? And if you're asking a front office person, they'll be like, Oh, I'm not sure. They almost want to keep some of these guys under the radar. And we'll see one of those guys named an assistant GM or something somewhere else on another team. And I'll be like, Oh yeah, I knew all along he was going to get that job. Even though I didn't even know who it was. So uh, humility sometimes is an important part of this job, but they have this, you know, just like they do on the playing field level, and I know you know this, Neil, but they have this deep roster of front office people who they train, they bring up. I mean, just look at the people who started as interns here. That would be Eric Neander. That would be James Click. That would be Heim Bloom. There's three guys running major league teams that are really good that all started as interns with the Rays, and they kind of raise them up in the front office like they do on the field. It's a pretty impressive farm system indeed. And, and while we wait to see what's going to happen during the course of this month, the general managers meetings are in California next week, there is a date right at the end of the month slash early December that is hanging. And that's the possibility of some sort of you know labor disruption. How does that impact the offseason? And could it be a benefit to the Rays if it's a shorter offseason than normal? Well, I, I mean, I think, you know, there's going to be a lot of scenarios that are going to play out. And we're going to hear a lot as we get closer to the December 1st deadline. You know, the CBA does expire. There haven't been, at least reportedly yet, many serious negotiations. Each team has presented you know, one economic proposal and the other side was pretty much like, yeah, right. Come back when you're serious. Uh, and, you know, this is something very complex with many levels and thousands of pages to it. But the core economic issues are going to drive this. And you know, deadlines do tend to lead to action, but if there is no resolution by December 1st at midnight, you're going to probably see a lockout because the owners have the chance to kind of force the action here. They don't want to wait till spring training when the players could call a strike and leave and then disrupt things. The owners want to take control. They could call for a lockout, which would then essentially freeze off-season business. So the winter meetings, which are to start December 6th, which would cause a lot of hassles for people coming from out of state. Those of us driving much easier to cancel your filling up your car with gas than worrying about plane reservations. But uh, those would get canceled, or at least the major league portion would. I think arbitration would get put off. I think signings would be frozen. I think trades would be frozen. So, you know, let, let's go optimistic, pes- pessimistic, optimist. There is a lockout. It does freeze things for a month or two and then come late January, early February, on the eve of camps opening, people come to their senses and say, okay, and they work it out. 
So now what happens? And this, I think, is what you're alluding to. Could it be to an advantage to the Rays? Suddenly, there's three weeks till spring training opens. Let's say they push it back a week. Spring training opens in three weeks. And now there's hundreds of free agents out there. There's all these trades that have been percolating and people have been thinking about. And now you've got almost like a, a race, a sprint to stock your roster. Yes, I could see where that could benefit the Rays because of the things we talked about previously. Their flexibility. They don't adhere to one specific plan. They're willing to kind of go react on the fly, to go with the flow, see where things take them. So I, I think that could help them in a way. And also a side benefit of that, and this not, is not lost on the owners, if they do go for the lockout, is if it's a rushed market scrambling for spring training, you're not going to see big contracts awarded because players are going to just want jobs and want to get into camp. I mean, the elite level guy, sure. I mean, Carlos Correa is going to get his money somewhere. It's, it's his time, as he tells us. Uh, when he hit his home run during the ALCS. But most of those free agents, if it's a, a compressed market because we're coming on the other side of a lockout leading to a resolution, I think there will be a scramble and there will be a chance for teams to do some significant bargain shopping or bargain hunting. Well, it's going to make for an interesting month indeed of November. And uh, great to chat with you about it, Mark. I'm sure you'll have uh, lots to read about in the Tampa Bay Times in the next several weeks. And hopefully people have read your preview and will follow on TV Times underscore race. Appreciate it. You know, I thought you meant a big event was like you were going to come take me out to lunch or something in December. I wasn't thinking about the December 1st deadline. Well, we'll see if my wallet is frozen, just like the labor agreement or not. <laughs> Mark Topkin of the Tampa Bay Times joining us on our latest podcast. You can follow also our blog, raceradio.mlblogs.com with the latest. As, we, as uh, news develops, we'll certainly have it for you. If Mike Sanino's option is picked up, we'll probably chat with him too. And until our next podcast, thanks very much for being with us. And we will talk with you soon.